sermon series this summer has been concentrating on the life of Joseph, this amazing character whose story dominates uh, the final chapters of the book of Genesis. And so we're going to pick up with that story this morning in chapter 42 in the book of Genesis. And if you would like to follow along in the Red Pew Bible in front of you, I think you'll find that beginning on page 35. I'm actually going to read a little bit ahead of that just to set the stage for the reading for this morning out of 42. So back up a few verses. Um, Let's hear the word of God. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth, including in the land of Canaan. Where we'll begin now in chapter 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over all the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. And they responded from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. And now move down to verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that We saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he, Joseph, turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to replace every man's money in his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey, and all this was done for them. Then he loaded their donkeys with grain, and they departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at a lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of a sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? This is the word of God. The story continues in chapter 43. We're going to pick up some pieces out of that because this is a big chunk of scripture. Beginning at verse 1. 
Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten up the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you'll send our brother with us, we'll go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? Then Judah said to his father Israel, Send the boy with me and let us be on our way so that we may live and not die, you and we and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. You can hold me accountable for him if I don't bring him back to you and send him before you. Then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry them down as a present to the man. A little balm, a little honey, gum, resin, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the top of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also and be on your way again to this man. May God Almighty grant you the mercy mercy before the man so that he may send back your other brother and Benjamin. As for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the man took the present and took double the money with him as well as Benjamin. And then they went on their way down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with him, he said to the steward of the house, Bring the men into my house, slaughter an animal, and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph said and brought the men to Joseph's house. Now, the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, It's because of the money replaced in our sacks the first time that we have been brought in so that he may have an opportunity to fall upon us, to make slaves of us, and take our donkeys. And they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the entrance to the house. They said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each one's money in the top of the sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it back with us. Moreover, we've brought down additional money to buy food. We don't know... Who put our money in our sacks? He, the servant, replied, Rest assured, don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your father must have put the treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. And then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the steward had brought the men into Joseph's house and had given them water and had washed, they had washed their feet, when he had given their donkeys fodder, they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon. For they had heard that he would dine there. The word of the Lord. Amen. We're into summer and things are heating up. But this week we're going to add to that heat on a personal level. Have you ever been in a sticky situation of your own making that required a cover-up? Pretty darn quiet out there. I would say that argues for unanimous approval. When I was in fifth grade, a part of my family responsibilities every other night was to dry dishes after mom washed them. On this particular summer evening, I wanted to be excused from that responsibility to play baseball with my buddies, but my mother wouldn't relax the requirement. She finished washing, and I was left to dry and put up the clean pots, dishes, glasses, and silver. The problem was I was seriously ticked off that I was stuck. My friends were calling me to come play, and I couldn't go. The longer it took, the madder I got until I finally slapped a stack of four dishes down on the counter, and three of them broke. The good news is they were everyday dishes. 
the bad news is now I was not only not done with the dishes, but I was in serious trouble. By some bizarre chance, the three broken plates weren't shattered, but instead had split in half in the middle. I very carefully put the pieces of the first plate, the two halves together, on top of a whole plate that I took out of the cupboard. Then I very carefully set another whole plate on top of the broken one to hold the halves together. And then I slipped another broken plate, the pieces together, pulled another whole plate down and laid it on top of those, did the same thing with the third broken plate, pulled another whole plate down on top of it, and then I very, very, very carefully eased them all into the cabinet. I quickly finished drying the remainder of the dinner dishes and the silver, and I bolted the kitchen to join my friends. But for some reason, I had a really difficult time focusing on the ball game. You know, I couldn't put those plates out of my mind. The next morning, everybody in the house had, so- had cereal for breakfast. I dodged my first bullet. But my worry grew because I couldn't come up with a logical explanation for the broken but very creatively stacked dishes. I ate lunch with a friend, dreading the reception I was going to get when I got home. We had family friends over that night. God is good. Mom used the good china. I escaped again. We ate cereal the next morning. We never had cereal two days in a row. It was another unlikely escape. Company joined us that night, and we used the china again, but I could hardly eat. Mom asked if I was all right. I mumbled, I'm fine. But inside, I felt anything but fine. My gut was churning. My pulse was racing. Finally, on night four, the broken dishes were discovered. Mom couldn't figure out what had happened and didn't remember that I'd put them up the last time we used them. I didn't get in trouble, except that every time we used the everyday dishes, I had a hard time looking at her, I had a hard time looking at the plates, and I had a harder time acting innocent. And and there were times when we used those dishes that she'd give me this really funny look that made me wonder if she suspected my role in their demise. So who or what brought that situation to the light of day? Know that the guilt didn't go away. I finally came clean when my stepmother gave the remaining dishes from that set to Kathy and she asked a critical question. Why were there so few plates left in the set? This morning, I want to talk to you about a part of the inner life of every single one of us that is seriously abused. Some people think this part of the human psyche is something to suppress, to trick, to ignore. It's called your conscience. And it's critical in our understanding of the story of Joseph and his brothers as well as understanding our own story. So what's the conscience? It's the soul's automatic early warning system. It's that blinking yellow light on the dashboard of your life that indicates something is wrong, something is off. It's hardwired into every single one of us by God. Your your conscience is switched on all the time. It actively evaluates whether a potential action or choice is right or wrong. Having made that judgment, the conscience prompts us to act in ways concordant, in agreement with the moral boundaries that that God has established within each of us. If we violate those boundaries, 
the conscience knows how to get our attention through guilt or shame. You see, the conscience is designed by God to function in concert with God's word. Apart from that word, which provides ongoing reinforcement of those God-created boundaries within which fruitful, healthy life can be lived, the conscience can soon be dulled and quieted. But it's never completely silenced. Joseph's ten older brothers engaged in a, an extensive cover-up of what they'd done to their brother Joseph. So talk to me. Let's, let's see what you remember from past weeks. What, what did the boys do? What did the ten older brothers do? They sold him into slavery after they had first plotted to do what with him? Kill him, right? The game plan was to do him in. And, and older brother Reuben argued against that. They, they sold him into slavery, but then they've got a problem, right? Sort of like the dishes. Now Joseph's gone. And they've got to account for Joseph's goneness to dad and the remaining family. So what do they do? What's the back end of the story? Yeah, they they take his robe, they put blood on it, uh, tear it, right? A wild animal got him, killed him. And, And so poor dad and the rest of the family are left to grieve for his loss over an extended period of time. As we explore Genesis 42, we meet again the brothers of Joseph, who had clearly long ago parked their consciences, right? They're a study in what happens when you cross the boundaries your conscience identifies as helpful and healthy and and cross it again and again. They reveal the consequences of ignoring Conscience, the conscience's warnings of, of shaking off the healthy guilt and shame that a conscience inflicts on you. Now remember, this isn't the boy's only transgression. Earlier, under the leadership of Simeon and Levi, they had deceived a village, slaughtered all of the men, taken the women and children captive in retaliation for the violation of their sister by one man of the village. Reuben, the oldest, had slept with his father's concubine. Judah had two sons who were so evil, God took their lives. Um, Judah had a fling with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, believing her to be a prostitute. I mean, these boys have gone a long, long way in dulling their consciences to the voice of God. Right? Decades have passed since the brothers' jealous hatred of Joseph had boiled over. And in a moment of anger, they sold him as a slave to a group of passing merchants, but having first considered killing him. Years have come and gone since they lied to their father to cover their actions, allowing him to believe that a wild animal had attacked and killed Joseph and leading Jacob to mourn Joseph's death for years. There's no indication in the story that the brothers had ever repented of any of the evil things they'd done. Not to God, not to their father Jacob, certainly not to Joseph. They did what we all tend to do. What I did with the plates. Pretend like nothing has happened. Suppress all thoughts of past actions. Press through the guilt and live a lie. Joseph was a teenager when he was sold into slavery. He's close to 40 years old when God brings him back together with his brothers in Egypt. The cover-up is still in effect when they meet. We know it from Genesis 42, 21 and 22, and Genesis 44, 27 and 28. So here's the question for us this morning. What does God do when we act this way? When we talk down our conscience, when we argue and argue it down until it goes quiet, how does he penetrate a hardened heart? 
what can you expect from God when your conscience has been, has been seared or dulled or deadened? God uses three tools to catch our attention when we mute our conscience. Those devices shake us awake. They, they bring our calloused and hardened consciences to life again. They help prepare us for repentance, cleansing, and renewed life. The first of them we see in Genesis 42 and that little block Cheryl read ahead of it. Because as we enter the story, the entire known world is experiencing famine. We've already studied in past weeks how God in his wisdom and power had positioned Joseph as the number two in all of Egypt. Her prime minister assigned with organization and oversight of the distribution of grain, which grew, the the collection of which grew out of his dream, his interpretation of, of Pharaoh's dream, and that brings him to power and authority. But as the chapter begins, we're back in Canaan with Jacob and his sons. Their cupboards are getting bare. The text says, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? He said, Behold, I've, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. The first and most common tool God uses to stir a deadened conscience, to, to set a fire, a cold heart, is that he makes us needy. He sends emptiness and barrenness into our lives at some point. Life is hollow. Have you ever been there? I have. I, I, I was that time with the dinner plates and my mom. I've been there since. Right? Where, where you, defy, you defy your conscience, you sin against God, you argue against right that voice that God has placed in your head and in your heart. In varied ways, God has used circumstances each time to call me back to him. Sometimes more quickly, sometimes more slowly. That's how he awakens our conscience. He deprives us of something. He subtracts from our lives those things we depend upon for comfort and security. He allows us to experience a grinding need, the fruit of which is to stir up a sense of spiritual emptiness and hunger for renewed relationship with him. There's a challenging verse in Psalm 106 in which the psalmist describes how Israel forgot the works God had done for their own good and had forged ahead with their own desires and plans rather than waiting on the Lord. They pushed God's will away. They pursued their own ways. Verse 15 declares, He gave them their request, but he sent leanness to their souls. One of the things that the Lord will do to get our attention and awaken a spiritual hunger for him is to make life unsatisfying. In the case of these brothers in Canaan, it was a famine. The comfort of food and home was taken from them. They have to journey to find a solution, not simply to preserve their own lives, but the lives of their, their wives, their children. Where do they have to go? Of all places, they have to go to Egypt, the very country to which the slave merchants took Joseph after they sold his freedom. When Egypt came up, Jacob said, Why do you look at one another? I think the boys knew full and well the only source of grain in the known world at that time. But they're not real happy about going to Egypt. Why? The name Egypt is tied with something they did in their past. And and now those consciences that were dead begin to come to life again. And their guilt begins to rise up. There's a good reason. They're looking at each other. Right? And they're looking at their dad. Egypt. Uh Uh-oh. 
the implications for them aren't good. The mere mention of Egypt brings up the memory of old sins long buried. God uses physical need to quicken their spiritual need. That's exactly Jesus' point in the story of the prodigal who squandered his inheritance in a far country, distant from his father's scrutiny, and he thought from his father's God. The story says, and when he had spent everything, a severe what? Famine arose in the land. And he began to be in need, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Jesus tells us that it was right at that moment that God penetrated his hardened heart, his dulled conscience. He came to himself, the Bible says, and remembered that even the servants in his father's house had it better. And that was the turning point for him, setting him on the path to home and restoration. Has God sent a famine into your life? A place where he's dried up the satisfaction you once derived from something or someone else. Maybe it's a financial famine. Maybe it's a relational famine. Know that all the emptiness we feel isn't derived from sin, but when barren times come into our life, look carefully. Because God may be knocking at the door of your soul wanting you to come clean and let him back in. The the second way God gets our attention is pain. Remember, I talked about the fact that that when the issue with the plate, that time period began to stretch and stretch and stretch, my level of discomfort grew. Why? What? Guilt. Yep. And tied to guilt, what's the other piece? What am I afraid is going to happen? Discovery. Yeah. Discovery, right? And, and, And so... God brings pain into our lives for a specific reason. As the story moves forward, Jacob won't send Benjamin, his youngest son, with his other boys to Egypt to buy grain. Why not? Verse 3 of Genesis 42 says, So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob didn't send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Does Joseph's decision reflect simple caution for a long 200-mile and uncertain trip, or does it point to a far deeper truth about the damage done by the ten older boys' earlier actions? Remember, Benjamin's not a child. He's in his early 20s at this point in the story. Does Jacob trust his sons? I don't think so. I think he knows the boys far too well. And and, and so this is his last connection to his beloved Rachel, his wife, the, the one he labored for for seven years and was tricked by Laban, his father in law, into laboring seven more for. Right? This is the last son of Rachel, his last living connection to Rachel. And he's not willing to risk it. What does that say about his awareness of the state of his boys' hearts? Now, go to the fateful day when these hardened brothers faced Joseph in Egypt. Verses 6 and 7 tell us that the brothers came and bowed themselves down before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to him. Verses 8 to 11 add that Joseph's brothers didn't even recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he dreamed of them, and he said to them, You're spies. You've come to seek the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We're honest men. We're honest men. Your servants have never been spies. 
Were they spies? No. So why was Joseph doing this? He's going to maintain this act this accusation. He'll he'll put his brothers in prison for 3 days. Do you hear the foreshadowing of Jesus time in the grave? Right? After which he orders them to select one of their number to remain in custody while the other 9 return home to bring the youngest son before him as proof of their honesty. There are more details to the story, but why this ruse? Why does Joseph hide his identity, drum up these charges, go to all of this trouble? Why doesn't he just turn the tables and cut to the chase? We're not told all of Joseph's motives. But here's what I suspect exists between the lines. Joseph was speaking and acting in this moment as prophet and agent from God, just as he had many times before as he voiced the dreams that God had given him and interpreted dreams for others that God had given them. Right? He was being led by the Lord each time, replaying the very words, reenacting the scene at that empty cistern from 20 years before. His accusation of them being spies mirrors what was said of him. Joseph brought a bad report, right, of them, his brothers, to Jacob. I mean, what do the brothers think about him? They think he's a spy for dad. They think he's ratting him out. And he is. Okay? The prison he cast them into for three days mirrored the pit into which they'd, they'd thrown him. I believe Joseph is being directed and used by God as an instrument to inflict inflict pain on his brothers, but pain with a clear purpose. Because the only way for real restoration of their broken relationship is for God to move sin-hardened men to a place where they can begin again on a new, clean footing. The way God does that is to break down all of their defenses and show them who they really are. It begins with their dying a bit day by day while they are in prison for three days. Now, Joseph's greatest test doesn't happen when he's laid low multiple times by injustice, when he's sold into slavery, when he's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, when he's forgotten in prison. It occurs in these very moments when he has unlimited power over his brother but doesn't use it for vengeance, doesn't use it for harm, but instead uses it for good. Abraham Lincoln once said, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you test a man's character, if you want to test a man's character, give him power. How have you used the power that God has entrusted to you? As a spouse, as a parent, as a discipler of others, in your position at work. We could go on and on. Note as well that when the meeting comes, Joseph's age, 40, his position, his dress, his manner, he's confident, authoritative, he speaks the language of Egypt, he's clean-shaven. All of those work together to blind the brothers to the truth of his presence with him. And in their likely belief that Joseph is dead. Why? Because slaves were ill-treated and didn't live long. And you can see why there's no recognition of him as their long-lost brother. But look how this time of suffering and the pain that Joseph very carefully inflicts affects them. Verses 21 and 22, they said to one another, In truth, we're guilty concerning our brothers. They're beginning to own it. Do you hear it? We're guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul and when he begged us and we didn't listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you didn't listen? Now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Do you catch the cover-ups within the cover-up? Reuben leaves. Simeon, who's the second oldest brother, takes point. 
Simeon is a major agitator in all this. Simeon's the one who contracts for Joseph's sale, right? And the nine remaining brothers deceive Reuben. They let Reuben think that he's dead. Did you catch that reference? Reuben believed all these years that Joseph was dead. Now comes the reckoning for his blood, right? Do you hear the echo of Cain and Abel in that? In Genesis 4, there comes a reckoning for his blood that, that, that tie to your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And see as well the answer to sin in Jesus' blood offering of his very life to make payment for us. All of, all of these circumstances align in the story to connect consequences to sin. Now, this is the second mean, means that God employs to turn up the heat on, on sin. He'll allow us to be treated harshly in order to mercifully convict us and lead us to repentance. King David made this connection when he said, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Now I obey your word. Psalm 119, 67. David's sin led to affliction. The sin we're talking about in this case is the whole story of the cover-up of the affair with Bathsheba that ends in the murder of Uriah, her husband. David's sin led to affliction, which turned him to repentance and a renewal of obedience. Hebrews 12 speaks of God's firm hand upon us when we sin. The writer says, Don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. 12 verses 5 and 11. So difficult circumstances are not always proof of past sin. However, if they've come into your life and God has used them to bring to memory past wrongdoing, then God's Spirit has made a critical connection for you. So never mind that some suffer innocently. Don't use the counter-arguments that we all marshal to, to try to turn off your conscience again. Because you know in that instance you're guilty. The brothers knew. You know God's not going to let you escape without consequences. Trouble, heartache, loss, pain can be God's means to bring you to repentance. There's no record that Joseph's brothers ever mentioned Joseph or their guilt before or after they arrived home upon completing trip one to Egypt. So God ratchets up the pressure one more time. That third way that God gets our attention is testing. God works in, a, in an individual's life to show us our true nature. The question is, are we going to see ourselves through God's eyes or not? One of the insightful verses of Scripture about how God brings out our character to lead us to repentance and renewed obedience is found in Deuteronomy 8.2. It says, You shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these past 40 years in the wilderness. Remember, Israel had to wander because of what? Why did they wander in the wilderness? They thought it would be a nice side trip on the way to the promised land? Talk to me. Because of their sin, right? Because of their sin. Why did God do it? The writer says that he might humble you testing to see what was in your heart, whether you'd keep his commandments or not. Note how incredibly good we are at deceiving ourselves. The brothers talking to Joseph refer to themselves as honest men. Are you kidding me? Right? Are you kidding me? And the things they've done aren't small infractions. A 
against God's command. We're honest men, right? And, and we are your humble servants. Do you hear the irony in that? The whole reason they tried to do Joseph in and threw him into a cistern was because they didn't like the fact that Joseph's dream portrayed them as servants. We're incredibly good at deceiving ourselves. And so in 24b, there's a reason Joseph picks out Simeon. Simeon, remember we said was the second oldest? When Reuben leaves, he would be in charge. Reuben had spoken up for Joseph, but in his absence, Simeon, who stood in the role of patriarch at that moment, remember the patriarch's job is to hold the family together and to bring lost children home, lost family members home. Simeon does exactly the opposite. Great patriarch. Honest man, right? And so, see how Joseph, acting in the place of God, not only tests the brothers' hearts collectively, but tests each heart individually relative to their own issues. Genesis tells us that the famine worsened. The brothers returned to Egypt, this time with their youngest brother, Benjamin, and Double the money. Double the money. That whole theme of silver recurs again. They sold Joseph. And and now the issue between them is silver. They are vindicated as honest men. Again, that term. Their brother Simeon's release from an Egyptian prison. A feast is given by Joseph in their honor. They had to have felt pretty good about how things had turned out as their donkeys were loaded with food the next day. They'd shown that their word was good, sort of. (laughs) Joseph seemed to believe them. Their integrity was intact. Maybe they wouldn't have to reveal the skeleton in their collective closet. But look what happens in 44.1. We're going to skip ahead and touch a little bit on the part of the story that Chad's going to talk about next week. Another curveball is thrown at them. Joseph gave these instructions in verse 1. Fill the men's sack with food, as much as they can carry. Put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for grain. And he, servant of the house, did as Joseph told him. Okay. What happened? Once the brothers are a short distance from Egypt, they're stopped, they're searched. When the prime minister's silver cup is discovered in Benjamin's grain sack, he's arrested and hauled back to Egypt. And here the brothers are at the start of this story. Once more, their youngest brother, favored son of the father, faces the prospect of slavery. Once more, they're reminded of their sale of Joseph. Are they going to save themselves and leave Benjamin to slavery as they had with Joseph, or would they make up another lie to tell their father about Benjamin's fate? But thanks to the work of the Lord and the work that Joseph's testing has done in their hearts and minds, none of those thoughts enter their thoughts. The brothers return to face Joseph on behalf of their brother, and then This amazing statement of repentance in 44.16 is shared, voiced by Judah, who's been the most self-centered, immoral, and cruel of all the brothers. Judah says, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. For the remainder of the chapter, Judah, the very one who suggested selling Joseph into slavery over 20 years before, that is jumped on, jumped all over by Simeon, now pleads for Benjamin's life. But the clincher comes in verse 33. Please let me, Judah says, let me, your servant, remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. Let the boy go back to his brothers. 
for how can I go back to my father if the boy isn't with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. For the first time in Joseph's memory, Judah is concerned about someone other than himself and is ready to substitute himself for his younger brother. What happened? Emptiness? Barrenness? Pain and testing? Combined to make plain to the brothers the unspeakable truth from God about all of our past sins and our well-concealed skeletons. Numbers 32, 23 says it this way, Be sure your sin will find you out. Here's the problem. Although we may hold secrets from each other and at times deceive ourselves, how well does God know us His creations. Listen to what David said, who learned this the incredibly hard way. From Psalm 139. Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before words on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If if I make my bed in Sheol, in death, you are there. How well does God know us? How well? What? Completely. Utterly. Better than we can possibly know ourselves. In Psalm 51, written after the affair and cover-up with Bathsheba, David writes these words, Against you, God, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Is that true? Is God the only one David sinned against? No, I think he sinned against Bathsheba. I think he sinned against Uriah. I think he sinned against, remember he's married. I think he sinned against his wife. I think he sinned against the kingdom in a whole host of ways. So what does that mean? What does David mean? I think David's saying that all sin, all of the things we do wrong, against God's word and law begins first with sin against God. It's brought about by a lack of trust in His love and His goodness and His sovereignty. Remember, we've been covering up since Genesis 3. We've been collecting fig leaves in a whole host of ways. Trust me, I know I can't tell you how carefully I stack those plates. Sin is so ingrained within us. It's it's unbelievably difficult for us to acknowledge our sin before God and others because sin against God always leads to broken relationships with others. So, do I need help? Do you need help? Did Joseph's brothers or David need help to own their sinfulness? You bet. What's the cost of sin? Scripture says it clearly. It's death in the end. What's God's provision for us to provide the critical help we need that we can't provide for ourselves? John said it in his gospel, for God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only son. That whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. And what's God's promise for us? We started the morning with it. The memory verse is 1 John 1, 9. Say it with me. If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What does it mean that God is and will be faithful? 
It means quite simply that he'll do what he promised. Right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive even though we haven't earned it. And and hear the good news in this story. As we read to the end, there's never a full confession by the brothers, a full acknowledgement by the brothers of the wrong they've done to their brother Joseph. Right? And yet hear the incredible grace in the story as Joseph stands in the place of God and mirrors God's steadfast mercy and love. Joseph forgives. And that forgiveness allows a completely new story to be written in the lives of ten brothers and a family and a nation and out of that nation, the world. All this by God's grace. So, If you're perfect this morning and have no need to acknowledge sinfulness or cover up in any area or aspect of your life, you can go rest in peace as you take a nap or do whatever you're going to do this afternoon. But if the Holy Spirit has some heart and mind and soul work to do in you when it prompts you, when the Spirit prompts you, when He brings to mind stuff from the past that you did. Don't say no. Don't talk down the memory, the awareness. But address it. Bring it before God, trusting in His faithfulness trusting in His goodness and love, delighting in His mercy so that a new story might be written in you and through you for the sake of the world. We're going to close in just a second. But before we close, I want you to hear one more scripture that I think is incredibly good news for folks who are stunningly good at covering up. These words are written at the close of the letter of Jude. It says, Now to him who's able to keep you from falling. I don't know about you, but I've fallen more than once. Who's able to make you stand without blemish in the presence of his glory with rejoicing. So think about that what that means. God is able to make you stand pure, not ivory pure, 99 and 99 one hundredths percent pure, but a hundred percent pure in his presence without blemish. For that we give God thanks and praise. And I pray that you will let it be so in your life by God's grace.